I'm Colby Spencer, and this is Vantropolis. This is Vantropolis, a podcast about the happenings, the goings-on, and the general day-to-day life and antics of the underslept masses working in Vancouver's film industry. I'm no expert. I'm just nosy. And if you are too, let's do this. When I finally finished editing this episode, it clocked in at 90 minutes. I wondered if I should cut it down, so I listened to it again. And the answer was a resounding no. Hans Dale is a film veteran and such a wealth of information that all of it felt essential. We cover his journey west to climb the ranks of film, first as a PA and then through the locations department, and now as a production manager. We also dive into the important conversations of mental health struggles in film, the toll of stress, and how to ask for help. And then we talk about the future of film and the union, as well as planning for the future of film in regards to climate change. Hans is a good storyteller, and I'm sure you'll find any, if not all, of the proverbial chapters of this episode extremely interesting. And if that doesn't do it for you, there might also be a story about the time he shared a cigarette with Bono. Enjoy. Hans, welcome. Welcome to Ventropolis. Thanks for making time for me today. I'm such a big fan of this whole concept, A, and and yours in particular, because uh, you're great at just, you're just a great person. I'm learning. You're very sweet. Well, you don't know me personally yet. You could totally unsay all that once you actually had to sit with me for an hour in person, off mic. I'll tell you that part of my uh, journey has been studying people that I have to meet and get to know really quickly. (laughs) I I can can figure things out. I'm usually right. I'm usually right. Sweet. Okay, I'm going to take that. I'm going to use that as my badge of honor. Um, so we're, we're here to talk about Hans today. Obviously, uh, you know, you're a production manager, but you've had a long and storied journey and storied in the best way uh, to get you where you are today. So I'd love to kind of take us, take everybody through that journey, but also, um, you know, we've got some fun in, in there as well with some other things you're doing, and I have some other questions for you unrelated to that. So Yeah, you've picked someone that likes to talk. <laughs> are you, uh, so are you in between shows now? Are you working right now? Uh, I'm just starting prep on another uh, series, uh, Hulu show. That's gonna—I don't know what the what the story really is. It's a nine-episode, ten-episode show. I think it's just a limited series. It's kind of a murder mystery on a cruise ship, and uh, and it's—I don't know much of the details yet. I don't even know if what, what I'm allowed to share yet. But uh, it, the, the pilot's been sh- it's picked up, but we, we we haven't even gotten. There's nobody on the clock yet. It's just we're just kind of piecing it together right now. Yeah, cool. I'm curious to see how, you know, how you feel about this role compared to your past lives in film. But if we go way back, because you're a veteran, you know, and and now I feel, are you Gen X? I'm Gen X, yeah. Yeah, same. So, um, but yeah, Gen X, right? Like you start realizing there's a lot of time behind you with your career and you're like, holy crap, like I've done, I've done a lot of years now. I'm in the 20s of like working years, right? Yeah. Which seemed so old when we were younger, but I never thought that I would do anything for this long, and now here I am doing film and being a part of film in at least in BC and sometimes beyond BC for so long. It's crazy. Well, a lot a lot of people say that in film, and I think it's where they've found a home, right? If they, you know, lose interest in other things, they don't want to work in an office. It's really an, it's a nice place to land, you know. Of yeah. course, it's got both sides or stress, and we can get into that, but. Um, Yeah, it's sort of like where all these misfits find a home a lot of people allude to, right? Yeah, I think definitely I've noticed that. It's funny, though, you say that, but I definitely feel that way. Like uh, in Canada, 
I think that, and especially working in service, I think that that's where where the island of misfit toys. Yeah, I always call us carnies. You know, we're kind of the modern day carnival workers yes. in a lot of ways, right? Which you've heard before. Um, but I, I feel too that uh, when you go abroad, uh, people take the craft a little bit more. It's a little bit more highbrow than we treat it here in Canada, and that's a part of my kind of inner mission to elevate the craft and just the, you know, the vocation of being in this business. Which I think this is why your podcast is so lovely and amazing, because it does lend some dignity to what the people do, you know, and and nobody really, it's a big mystery to most civilians, what we do for a living and how it works. So kind of, you know, pulling back the curtain a little bit is a fun, fun endeavor for me too. Yeah. And I love that you use civilians, right? Like you're in this, you're in this like special ops, right? It's like the civilian world, not the film world. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it, there's just no way for people just don't even have a clue. No. What, you know, I realized that as a locations person quite a bit because you know, when you're doing it, and this is kind of the only real adult job that I ever had. I mean, I did other things, but I, there were never adult things. And I was a student, I was a university student for a while. So the, when you go into people's homes and you realize they have no idea what this all means, and you have to break down the whole process of how we're going to organize a film shoot and how this all works. And then they show up and their eyes are, you know, bulging out of their skulls. And they're looking at this going, how does this happen to our home in just a matter of, you know, seven hours or 10 hours or sometimes a couple of days. And then it's all, it's all going to go back to normal. And you're sitting there going, yeah, it's going to be better than you left it better than you left it with us. We'll clean it up and make it and we'll repaint your doors, you know? <laughs> well, and that's why they say in loco- locations, right? Number one, you usually don't want the owners there. And number two, you never tell them everything because if you did it all at once, they'd probably close the door. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's a craft, that craft of, of being able to sell things, which I can tell you, I'm no master of at all. I'm so honest with people. Well, let's yeah, get it. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, let's get into that then. Cause like, I, you know, we're obviously jumping the gun here with locations and I want to back it up because yeah. I think so many people find value in how you found your way to film. It's not overnight and it takes, it's a, everyone's journey is different. Right. So, yeah. but, um, yeah. so yeah, so you grew up in Ontario, right? I did. I grew up in Ontario. I was a very precocious young kid. I skipped grades and had very good grades and everyone had, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm East Indian and very traditionally so, and first generation. So there was a lot of ambitions that I would do like most Indian kids and land in, you know, medical school or some professional school or something like that, which I was on track to do. And so I spent a lot of years in university uh, trying to figure out how I was going to do that. But uh, at the end of the day, I hated being in the lab, which is where I ended up uh, by myself. And I needed people and I needed culture. And I really liked, you know, I still am a huge music fan and a and, uh, you know, I like uh, I like the movies, obviously, and I like to read quite a lot. So it was just very boring what I was doing. Uh, and so I switched out of sciences and decided to study film. And I didn't understand what I was doing when I started studying it because it was very theoretical and really more about culture and cultural studies and media studies, that kind of thing. And then I heard about this program at UBC and uh, I came to check it out, dropped everything moved out here and enrolled in the program and then flunked out of the program when I realized I could actually go to work on on shows. And I started meeting PAs around town, just working in restaurants. And that's what looped me into working, you know, in on set. I got a, I found someone who was working on the X-Files. He roped me into a day call here and there. And it just kind of, 
you know, you start day calling and then you're quitting your day job. And by 97, 98, I stopped doing anything else. I was just working in film as a PA. Right. And there were those like key shows in the beginning, right? I know my husband worked on The Dead Zone, right? X-Files, like, of course, 21 Jump Street, which kind of, you know, started the love for me and the interest of film way back. Yeah. But yeah, there were those key shows where everybody, and and then you come around and find these people again, like 25 years later on other shows, you know, that you PA'd with. And now they're like ADing or whatever. Well, I think that that's particular thing when you say Gen X, like there's a handful of us Gen Xers, I think that I'm close to or still still tight with, I, I guess. And we kind of came into the business around the same time, right at the tail end of that sort of peak first wave or second wave of television, depending historically on how you want to see it. So X-Files, Dead Zone, uh, there was a couple of channel shows, I think, still floating around, but it was like Viper, all that sort of stuff was floating around. Highlander. Highlander, all those shows were floating around. Uh, Stargate was another big one. Right. But then... What happened in town, and I only know this in retrospect, looking back, is that the government, two things happened. The government introduced the digital and uh, visual effects credit, the Dave credit, which you'll hear about. And then, and that kind of blew things up a little bit. And then the other thing that happened was the TISO report, which was this big study that the judge TISO had done, and it kind of stabilized the work environment and labor and the producers from the States and Canadian producers had sat down with the unions and hammered this thing out. And what that was, was just all about labor stability in BC. And I think when those two things kind of congealed, then all of a sudden, all this big, all these big studios said, Hey, we can go to Vancouver. It's way cheaper. The dollars 65 cents to the U S dollar. We get these huge tax Mm -hmm. credits. And it was, you know, we were amongst the first jurisdictions that really had that. So, Did you notice it when you were working? Like you saw the floodgates open? I didn't really notice it because I didn't know it. But I was like, why is it that my little generation of people, we were able to work on, you know, we worked on, I worked on The Sixth Day with Schwarzenegger. And then I worked on a show with Jeff Goldblum. And then I worked on a show with, you know, uh, Tim, I did Santa Claus 2. And then I jumped over to X-Men 2. And I was just doing feature after feature after feature. And I was like, these are big freaking actors. Why? How is this possible? And I would talk to people from Hollywood that came up from L.A. as working as assistants. And they'd say, dude, I waited 10 years before I worked on my first feature film. Like, you're just walking into it after two or three years. You know, and so at the same time, you took it as like, okay, well, I'm going to learn. I'm going to take this all in. I'm going to study this. I'm I'm being exposed to great, great people. And then you start to see the, you know, I was on, uh, I was on when I was on X Men Two, for example, great example. The visual effects supervisor on that was a guy named Mike Fink, and Mike was the guy that, like, for a nerd, for a kid like me, like kind of a book nerd, comic book nerd. I loved fantasy. I loved sci-fi. I mean, Mike Fink invented the flux capacitor. He sat with Robert Zemeckis and they were spitballing ideas for the, for the DeLorean. And he invented the word flux capacitor, right? That's the time machine engine that sends Marty and back in time. And I'm like talking to these guys, I'm probably what, 32, 30, 30 years old. You know, I was like a cloistered kid that didn't really see a lot of the Western world for a lot of years. And then like all this sort of stuff is happening to me in my life. What an, what an experience. Like it was been, it's been crazy. That was crazy. So I didn't see it. I didn't see it then, but I saw, I see it in retrospect now, you know? Right. Yeah. And so when you were PAing, like how did you move forward from that? So you're obviously, you were PAing, correct? Yeah, I PA'd for about, uh, not for very long, actually, for about two, two, two and a half years, which in those days, 
you know, you would, the, the work was not like it is now where it's like you would get a call twice a month or you would do a show for six weeks. Uh, and then, you know, nothing would happen for a couple of months or a month or whatever. And then you'd get another call. Mm-hmm. And now it's just back to back and you can put yourself on an avails list and, you know, you're, you're working the next day if you want. Yeah. Um, but I think that I just latched on to some great people and had some great mentors. Uh, in, in particular, I'd say uh, Reno Pace was a location manager, senior guy who's won like multiple awards and had done lots of work. He'd worked with Clint Eastwood and stuff. Reno latched on to me and Gooby, who's a huge location manager uh, in town, who's done like the Mission Impossibles and all the, you know, all the Star Treks and all those types of films. She was location manager on those shows eventually. I worked for her. I worked for Kendry Upton, who's now the uh, the uh, the executive director of the Directors Guild, but was location manager for many years. So I was just bouncing around with all these people. And of course, after time, you've done two, 300 days as a PA. They're like, no, you got to do something else. So move up and here's more responsibility. And then you're a trainee. And then I was a trainee for a couple of years. And then I moved up to ALMing. And that's when I really, you know, probably for about six or seven years, stayed ALMing and, you know, started my family and, and, basically turn my life inside out really. <laughs> yeah. Well, and for those that don't know, right? Like that's assistant location manager. So that's right. explain Sorry, yeah. just for those that won't know the four people that don't know what that is on this podcast, but like explain what locations is for people. It's an important department, right? It is an important department. It's very undersung. It's very under glamorized because I always say that you're, you're never around when the shooting crew is around when you're a location manager and you're always around with all the creatives. So you're kind of teetering between producers and writers and directors. And then you got to go into the trenches and worry about where the bathrooms are going to park and where the parking is. So you're kind of this all-encompassing right. entity that nobody really knows because the crew doesn't see you. And the technicians don't really interact with the location manager, for example. I worked, so an assistant, back in those days, he would really work when I started. It was like one location manager who basically managed finding all the places to shoot and then makes arrangements legally, uh, liability-wise, to make sure that the film production can show up there and shoot. Now, we used to be kind of a cowboy industry, so there wasn't a lot of rules, but as the studios became more important to how we do things in BC, of course, they have huge legal departments and and lots of risk management, lots of insurance concerns. So all that sort of paperwork and rote kind of uh, requirement that you need legalese and all that sort of stuff, that's where location managers got, got really bogged down. And so... Back in those days, you would have someone that was like a proxy on set, and that's what an ALM is, an assistant location manager. It's kind of like the locations department's person on set. In BC, unusual to a lot of other jurisdictions, we're actually responsible for the PAs as well. So ALMs hire all production assistants. We're the only jurisdiction that does that. Normally, elsewhere in the world, even in Toronto, uh, the the unit does that, production does that, or the ADs will do it, and they'll have a, a handful of production assistants that work for them that lock up the set. So you may have a couple of assistants that'll land cars or deal with parking or whatever in other places. Uh, but the set's really run by these ADPAs. You've probably heard assistant director PAs that term before, and that's how it's done in a lot of jurisdictions outside of BC. But here you're responsible for all those people. So it's a bit of a different structure. What it means is that you're really, it's really tough work. It's a lot of work because you're not just managing being kind of the rep for the, you know, for the show to the location. You're also managing all these PAs. You're also dealing with all the logistics of moving the unit or moving trucks and moving cameras and having, getting permission to do things at, at the last minute, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. It's a really tough job. And I, and I still, 
you know, I still, I'm hard probably on ALMs because I want them to be better, but I think that I still appreciate how challenging that job is because it really feels like just yesterday that I was doing it myself. Yeah. And do you think like, because PAs are sort of under the wing of that department here, that it's a natural trend, like it's a natural transfer up into locations? It is. Yeah, it is. It is a very natural transition, uh, especially if a PA is promising. They want we you know, we're always looking for more assistance. So we're, we're always encouraging PAs to move up. But there's always PAs that also want to be more with, you know, deal with a cast or deal with the schedule. And that becomes, you know, and then you go off into AD land that way. So we do have two streams and the Director's Guild, that's really how our training is set up to those two streams. Uh, you have the stream that goes into locations coming out of being a PA, and then you have the stream that goes into uh, becoming an AD assistant director uh, coming out of a PA. And th- those folks are usually people that don't want to deal with, you know, lugging plywood. <laughs> Not that anyone does, yeah. but they they really are more, in, yeah, they're more in tune with, you know, the cast and the timing of the the, the day. Uh, you know, that's usually the the personality wise. And then, you know, ADs will also they're right there. So if it's a if it's an AD that's kind of scouting for for potential uh, assistance for them, they're looking for people who have those sort of social skills with the cast, which is a big thing, right? You need to be able to talk to actors in the right way on a set they're working uh and usually they're uh they're in a different headspace than the rest of us and need to be yeah and uh and so you're looking for those people that are going to help nurture that it's like the sharks and the jets it's west side story you got to pick a side right everybody's cruising for their next their next member <laughs> yeah absolutely it's like well, it's, it's there's gangs in this business all the time right now i see <laughs> now i see it in two other departments now as a pm i watch I watch how the grips will will do that because they're also stocking PAs, uh, and uh, set deck department also does that too. They're always stocking PAs, and I'm like, well, oh, that's interesting because I'll then I'll hear you know mining. Yeah, they're mining. I'll hear a month later I, there was a PA at a location prepping, and then all of a sudden that PA is now belongs to the set deck department, and I guess that's just how it goes. And I remember those days. I remember like uh, Chris Gilmore, who's a who's a very senior uh, lead dresser in town. I think he was one of the first uh, dressers that I worked with on set uh, when I was a PA. And I remember helping him move furniture and and him just saying to me all day, every day, saying, you really got to come into set deck. You really got to come into set deck. <laughs> and this is probably like 20 something years ago. And I still see, like I call him Gilly. I think everyone calls him Gilly. I still see Gilly around. He goes, yeah, you're thinking about quitting PM and uh, PMing and becoming a set decorator? I'm like, no. <laughs> So they're still trying to. You're like, ask me tomorrow, though. You never know, right? Yeah, that's right. Ask me how my day goes. I might change it up. So, and 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 the thing is, too, like nobody, you know, I don't want to age us, but it's like when you think back to being locations, you know, back then. Yeah. Like you didn't have iPhones. You didn't text people. You had like binders of photos, right? So you would go to locations literally with a camera, correct? And like put them all in an album. Is am I wrong? No, and like no, show no. that stuff to production to pick like this is the castle location we could use. Yeah. And you went and took a bunch of pictures and like kind of put them, seamed them all together, yeah. right? Yeah, you would spend so you would go out scouting if you you were scouting before probably 2003, 2002, I would say. You were going out with a film camera, uh, whether it was a point and shoot or an SLR. You were going out, you would tilt the camera 90 degrees, right? So it's up and you would take pans. And sometimes those pans would be like 12 pictures. And then you'd go to the lab and you'd have to get the lab at three, around 3, 3.30, 4 o'clock at the latest. 
And the labs, there was about four of them in town and they would churn out the photos and all the scouts would be hanging out there. You know, everybody that you knew yeah. at the end of the day, and you, you spitball ideas or whatever it is for whatever shows that people are on. There's three or four of them. And then for an hour, you'd take pictures, you'd tape them with a little roll of tape and you'd tape the backs together. And it was like an accordion that you would unfold in a file folder. And then you have to make sure that your location manager, who's going to show them the next morning, had them in hand that night. So you're really Really only getting about five or six hours of scouting done in a day. And now I can tell you that if the sun's out in the summertime, you know, starting at seven o'clock, like I'm expecting my scouts to come back with 10 files, folder, file folders of of photos, because it's like, well, you got all day and you don't have to do anything. You just upload your thing to, to, you know, drop. Yeah. Listen up kids. Come on. Yeah. It's yeah, you, like you don't have to go to the photo, Broadway photo. That's right. No. And it's funny, too, with tech, you think, oh, well, things will be easier. And they are. But I would say expectations are higher, too, to your point, right? It's like, well, you're just just go point and shoot. Like, do it all day. You should get 100, you know? 100% people just expect the world in a minute now, you know? Same with the cell phones. To your point about the uh, iPhones and having all that technology, uh, well, you couldn't, if you wanted to get something done, even with the city or with some private location owner back in the day, it was a two day wait. So you, yeah. if you were stuck and you were, you were on a location doing something and the, the director said, Hey, I want to put the camera over there and you didn't have permission to do it. I mean, you're making like one hell of an executive judgment to say, Hey, yeah, do right. it. And I'll see if I apologize. You know, we always say, uh, you know, ask, ask, and if you can, then apologize, you know, it's that whole principle of, you know, sometimes yeah. you got to apologize. And so many times you do that. Many times you're just sitting there going, well, we got to shoot it. Let's go sh- steal it. We'll steal the shot and uh, see what the see what the out- outcome is. And it can get it. That was. That can be ugly. Yeah. How far can you push yeah. it? You get, that's that's a, that's part of the craft. That's part of the part of guessing. And I'll, I'll again say I'm not very good at it because I was always so honest that I'd sit there and, and really have like a moral dilemma. Not me, not to say that I'm like this little, you know, George Washington kind of honest, but it's like, you kind of don't really realize the impact of what you're, what you're deciding, you know? So you don't want to be, you don't want to push your luck. No. And you don't want to burn the location, right? Because you think, well, if I need to come back here and they're just like, hell no, after last time, right? Which has happened even in the city. I would say cities have shut down shooting, um, even using it as a location because they just get tired of film crews, right? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's an ongoing conversation for us. And Fortunately, we have great people that we can go to now a little bit more than we used to back in the day, like the, the Film Commission, Marnie, Marnie and, and Catherine and people at the Film Commission, Creative BC, really wonderful at helping to, you know, sort of moderate the, the, the instances where things have gone wrong. We used to do town halls. We, we would do a town hall in Santa Claus too. I can tell you, we did an open house where we invited the whole community in. Uh, to a, to one of the community halls in Carisdale because we're shooting this house in Carisdale. We're going to snow the whole area up, right? We're going to use the special effects snow. We're going to snow it up. It's probably the middle of summer. I can't remember when what 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 the time of year was. And so we invite all the community members to this town hall or town open house. About 10 people come in, and you can imagine that most of the people that come really only come because they have an opinion, so they all need to be heard. Oh, my God, I'm already cringing. I'm already cringing when I hear this. And their opinion is usually kind of just a little bit left of of normal, right? They're all <laughs> nuts. <laughs> so we're in, a room, we're, we're in a room from full of nutty residents. The people from the Carousel Business Improvement Association are there. City Hall's there, represented by the film office, and the production's there. And we're explaining what we're going to do. And we, you know, we address all their concerns. Everything goes well. Everybody's happy. 
cut to, we film the location. And sure enough, we film the location and something goes wrong and the special effects snow that they're using is toxic to all the greenery on the street. So at the end of the oh show, God. yeah, at the end of the show, all the, all the, uh, the, the street was uh, completely dead. Like all the vegetation on the street was completely dead. Oh my so this, I mean, I, I'm, I, I didn't follow through on this because I left the show at that point, but they had to go to court. It was a big deal. It was just a big shit show. And you're still apologizing for it. I still find myself apologizing for it 20 years later, you know? Yeah, you can't go to Carisdale now. You got to keep your head down. <laughs> well, I've done a lot of work on uh, getting Carisdale back as well. So we do reach out quite a bit. And that's one thing that Vancouver and BC has been really good at doing as a community and as a, not only from the government side, but also within the locations fold, the department's fold is is maintaining relationships and building them back when things went really south uh we're pretty good at it we know how to do that well I, there's always jokes that lms walk around with just money in their pocket right and they're just like what do you need <laughs> what is it going to take for you to move your car sir yeah 100 bucks you want 100 bucks how about 150 get out of here well back in the day you could do that like the first location managers that i worked for who i think are now all mostly producers hilariously enough uh they all would uh walk around with rolls of cash but now the studios are so rigid and diligent about every cent. Like right. there's sometimes where you you can't buy a gift for people. Like it's just it's insane. You know you can't buy people a, yeah. a, a gift a gift basket or whatever it is. They don't they don't even want to see that because they think it's you know payola. <laughs> Looks like a kickback. Well, I always thought they should have like a big ticker above the shoot that just shows how much tax revenue is being, you know, like those debt tickers uh. at like, you know, in New York City and just show like, okay, we're down in Strathcona and all these like guys on their fixie bikes, which my husband used to joke. He's like, I'm out filming in the middle of the summer. I'm sweating to death with, you know, in electrics. And these guys would drive by on their fixie bikes and finger them. And they'd be like, get the fuck out of my neighborhood. And he's just like, dude, what, what did I do? Like, I'm tired too. But, you know, if you had ticker tapes that were just like, you know, the province has just earned $28,000 in the last six days. You know what I mean? It would yeah, be like yeah. so much easier to, to help people understand the revenue it's bringing in, right? I know it's not just about that, but I mean, if we want to move away from like resource, film to me is a huge gold mine for that. That is not as damaging, right? You're uh, you're preaching to not only the choir, but like I feel like sometimes I'm getting that tune. I've said it to ministers. I've been I've been fortunate enough to meet people, and I say it all the time. Like for this province to move forward, what a great entree we have with the film and television industry. And sometimes I've used the example of the Dave Credit coming into being and the sort of meeting of electronic arts and what was happening with EA and the gaming business and that Dave Credit kind of merged. And then all of a sudden there was this huge pool of, of animation, visual effects, people. I remember mm-hmm. when Vancouver Film School first started, right? And these schools all exploded within 10 years because people realized, oh, we're going to get a massive tax credit by being here. And it's a great way to grow the business. And now you think about it and there's just, you know, there's 120,000 people in the entertainment business and, and working in BC. That wasn't, that, nobody thought about that, you know? But that's the other thing about yeah. filming in Strathcona now is that half the people that are giving you the finger are giving you the finger because they're not working that day because they are also in the film industry. And they're just happy that they're not on set that day. <laughs> run into more I run into more love it. my kids laugh to laugh at me and say is it possible for us to go out anywhere and for you to not run into someone that works in film and I'm like I'm pretty sure 
it's kind of the way it goes right now, you know. But I know. there's room for more. Well, and that's the thing about this podcast, right? Is like they're 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 among us. They're everywhere, and my husband's the same. And he'll like put his head down. He's like, I don't want to talk to film people today. I'm like, isn't that so and so? Because I'm such a like looking over the fence yeah. wannabe. And he's just like, no, no, let's not, let's not, let's just get our stuff and get out of here. Yeah, I live. I <laughs> talk live, about work for 25 minutes. I live at the P by the PNE, and I could tell you that every time someone rings my doorbell, that's from a film company to say we're parking at the PNE or we're doing an overnight shoot at the PNE or whatever, they, I answer the door and they look at me and they're like, "Well, how do you live here?" And I'm like, "Well, I live here too. Like we all live somewhere." <laughs> yeah, we all got to sleep for one hour a night. We're hoping to change that. Let's we're working to change that all the time. Yes, you know? but anyways, that's a whole other big topic. Yeah. Yes, it is. Lack of sleep and the whole IE stories and all that came from that and people working without a contract up here and trying to change those things. But, uh, um, you know, we can't solve those all today, although I'd like to. Um, but, yeah, back to you. So you're, so you're LMing. Like, I'm curious how you moved, you know, and I know you kind of had some personal stuff too, right? Like, we don't talk enough on that note about stress and family and the toll that film takes on your personal life, right? Yeah. You just hear the glory climb and these big feature films, but there's a human behind that that's, like, sacrificing a lot to move up, right? So I'd love for you to just to, just to speak to that. Yeah, and it, and it's good that you're talking about that because that's a big thing that's happened in my life for sure. And I don't get the chance to, to share that, and people don't really want to ask because it's kind of impolite to say, "Hey, what happened?" You know, or "What's what's your story? What happened with you?" But I do think that for me, like I didn't have, I was lucky in that I didn't have any kind of uh, challenges with addictions or anything like that. I just was a workaholic and I wasn't physically yeah. capable of managing having a young family and, and the workload. And my ambition is way bigger than my capability. So I've always been ambitious and wanted to push myself. And at the same time, the funny thing is in this town is that because the work's kind of come easy, you kind of become a little complacent a little bit sometimes, you know, and I'm sure that you hear this from other people that uh, there's a little sense of, entitlement or complacency around how to be, how to expect, uh, you know, how to expect things from this business because we just are always working. And I, I would argue that, that kind of happened to me a little bit too. It's like, I just assumed that I'd be working. And when there was moments where I didn't know that, and I had that stress and I was stressing out my family, yeah. you're kind of overextending yourself a little bit financially. You're overextending yourself with, I had, I, you know, by the late two thousands, I had two young kids. I had a marriage that was teetering on completely collapse because I just was never around and I was definitely not available emotionally. Otherwise, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't present for my life. And yeah. so everything fell apart for me, actually, career wise, I had to really take it easy. I had a seizure in 2008. Uh, and it was diagnosed that I, you know, I, I had a seizure from exhaustion, like my brain just stopped working. During that seizure, I was I was catatonic for some time, and I also couldn't speak for a full day. I was not able to speak. Wow. You imagine <laughs> me not being able to speak. Well, when you ignore when you <laughs> when you ignore the body, it just does it for you, right? That's what they say. Yeah. So I had a complete meltdown. My marriage fell apart in that following year, and uh, and so everything kind of sort of seized up. I was on. I just gotten on to a Man of Steel, like the Superman film with with Zack Snyder and a bunch of my friends. And, you know, at the, at the time, I, I wouldn't say this out loud. At the time, I didn't really understand that, that 
I could probably look for support, but you're so, that's a part of this, this business that people don't really capture either is that we don't ask for help. We're, this is a stoic, no. tough uh, group of people and they're not used to ex- extending their hands for help or asking for it when they need it. And so what happens is a lot of people fall apart. And obviously, you know, lots of people who've had marriages fall apart or, you know, yes, addiction, yep. addiction issues or whatever it is. And I think it's because we're just such a tough, stoic lot of, you know, like mm-hmm. you said, a lot of people that are on their own, they, they, they're the misfit toys. They're not used to asking for it. And I do think that that's a, a, a tragedy. It certainly was for me. I didn't at the time reach out and I didn't really know that I had anybody to, to support me. I don't think we had the system yet in place to support someone like me, but I clawed back and I started working again. And once I figured out how to parent on my own a little bit and live on my own, uh, I, I figured it out, but it wasn't without going to counseling, without going to, you know, finding therapy outside of the film industry. And that was also yeah. part of the reason why we pushed for call time mental health and, and uh, a lot more addiction support, a lot more marital support, uh, even with your kids, you know, parenting support. Uh, we've, we, we do chase all that stuff quite a lot. Uh, with that, with that in mind, you know. Yeah, and there's always room to grow, right? For sure. Yeah, we we've come a long way generally with that, you know. We we have, and it, it's funny though because I I do. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say we're nowhere near where we need to be. There's no question that we're not where we no. need to be, but it's but it's an uphill fight that we at least have gotten the ball rolling on. You know, it's it's happening. Yeah, because I mean, people always say like, oh, if you if you like, you know, you feel nauseous, you can leave set. But if you say I'm super stressed out, I'm going to have a panic attack. I have to go to my car. Good luck. You know what I mean? Like, good luck someone not looking at you weird or some, I hate to say it, another dude making a snide comment, right? Like, that's that's not a safe space to say that stuff. And that's why people just suffer silently in every industry. It's not just film, you know? That's right. Yeah, I do, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't know enough about other industries to say this. And I do, but I do think that in terms of human resources or managing people, we've, we've not been given a very uh, big toolbox. And th- as a result, yeah. a lot of people, you know, the, the damage is done at some point, you know, uh, a lot of people are yeah. just basically like, I don't want to call it post-traumatic stress disorder because it's not, but it's somewhere in that spectrum of, of they're so damaged over time of being abused or being bullied into not speaking out. And what happens? You know, we've had over the number of years, I'm sure you've seen them, people who die of, of, of die by suicide, die of issues that come out of their yeah. addiction. It's happened so much to people and even just cancer. I mean, there's links to, you know, to your mental and emotional stress and cancer is a huge, huge uh, world of study now. And it's, and it's happened in our business a lot. <laughs> I don't, I don't think it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's as rare as we think it is, but yeah. So going, so going back to your mental health then, so you had that sort of, I don't want to say a breakdown, but a huge catalyst for needing some change, right? And and what were your steps after that? Like, tell me how you kind of came back from that. And then also sort of, you've evolved now into a different role out of locations. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, when I did, ha- and I would call it a breakdown, even though I don't think it's as kind of dramatic as it sounds when you say breakdown, but it was a breakdown. Well, you had a seizure. I, w- I would say that's pretty serious, right? Yeah, it is pretty serious. Yeah. And uh, so I don't, I, I think that when I clawed my, like clawing my way back is probably a bit too uh, 
stoic or something too. I mean, I really just decided to take it easy and to re I sort of realized I'm not serving myself. I got, I drowned myself. I, it had probably been 15 or 20 years since I read books. And I, so I started meditating a bit more and re-engaging in that part of my life, re-engaging in my brain a little bit differently, like with, with reading, a lot of reading. Uh, and then just taking my time coming back to work. I scouted for about a year and a half, two years. Then I started back into, you know, ALMing and doing an odd show here and there. I wanted to spend more time with my kids and was trying to figure out a way how to just be a parent and be able to pick up and drop off and do all those things, which you can't do when you're an ALM. Uh, so I had to take either scouting gigs or location managing gigs when they came and they finally started coming, you know, and, and people started seeing that the work that we had, that I'd learned or that I'd done was still worth, you know, supporting. And, and, you know, I got, so I got hired and by the time the mid, I'd say probably at 2015, 2016, when things just exploded here with Netflix, I think that the yeah. term, I think there was just people looking for people to upgrade. And, and I happened to meet Ian Hay again, who I'd worked with on Arctic Air. And Ian said, can you come and just do the show locations wise? And I'm like, sure. And within, you know, a few weeks, he was like, I need more help. Can you bump up to, to production manager? And I'll just, I'll just produce the show. And I'm like, yeah, sure, sure. And uh, so that really just started it. And it's been five years now, I guess, four years. And it's been awesome. Like it's a, it's a different, it's a different mindset, but uh, it frees, it frees up a little bit of your time from having to be kind of ever present on a, in, in the, in the world of the set, because even when you're in locations, this is, people don't understand is that there's what's happening on set, but there's like a whole other set of conversations that are happening outside the set. And if you're a strong location manager, you want to be a part of both those conversations. Right. And that's really hard right. to do. Yeah. So once you're, when you're PMing, I mean, it's just, you're, you, you kind of, if you trust the people that you're working with and you brought into the show, you're watching, you're watching for flaws, mistakes, uh, opportunities, challenges, you're looking ahead. It's a different mindset than when you're in locations. It's not as much triage and crisis management as it is, you know, advanced planning, you know what I mean? For lack of a better way. Yeah. And did you know what production management was? Like being around it, obviously, you know what a PM was and you would interact with them, you know, in your life in, in locations. But, you know, I, I hear a lot of stigmas about PMs, right? About like holding yeah. the money and being cheap yeah. and being ruthless. And like, tell me about that. Like, how did you, what did you know before? And then how did you feel on the other side of the coin once you were involved in it? Yeah, I don't think that I've ever had the feeling of of seeing production managers as uh, the holders of the money because I've always, I think I always understood that they were basically project managers that ran the, you know, below the, what we call below the line, right? You basically are tasked with managing all the different conversations, all the departments that aren't above the line, that aren't producer, writer, director, and actor, you know? Right, so, right. The thing that we have to try and remember, and I don't think people really understand this. I didn't really have a problem with it before. Of course, you run into production managers that aren't supportive or that aren't capable and don't understand a lot of things. And I think that I hate to say this out loud, but there are lots of people that don't know the job before they even walk into it. You know, they're not really aware of how much 
human resources is involved, how much accounting uh, understanding mm-hmm. you have to have, how much you have to understand the contracts with all the different entities like SAG, like the insurance companies, like the, you know, the, the, the Canadian unions, whatever it is, you have to have some sense of all that before you can do the job competently. So I, I was lucky that I met mostly, most of the time I had production managers that were competent that way and could, you know, they irradiated that. I never felt like they weren't holding the money without, without cause. They were holding, withholding the money because right. maybe what I thought was important wasn't what they thought was important because they're getting information from one of the writers saying that that's really not a set that we care about, even though it might be the set that I got to hunt down and I'm having a hard time hunting down. The writer's saying, no, we can move that set to some other geography we don't really need it to be a you know a gray house it could be a white house it could be a blue house it doesn't really matter and the production manager is getting that information a lot of times they're not communicating that to locations people and so we're out spinning our wheels or we're out on the road hunting down a gray house when back at the ranch the guys are saying we don't care if it's a gray house doesn't really matter that much yeah yeah there's always context to it right yeah yeah exactly So the stigma is fair because people don't really understand the con- all the different types of conversations that a production manager is having. I do know that, like I said, there are some weak communicators out there. They can be abrupt. They can be rude. I think that the culture of disrespect is something that's changing and people are seeing that you can get more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. So it's going to shift over this generation. I think this next generation of people coming in are going to treat the job differently. But I do feel that yeah. some of the things that I've learned as a production manager about how much, you know, your, your money, you're pinching in a, sometimes you're pinching pennies, not for any reason that's got to do with the pennies, but some other, there's some other conversation that's, that's uh, behind it that you're not a, maybe allowed to talk about. Maybe you don't feel comfortable relating uh, that sort of thing you right. know? and people don't understand it it's like you know i don't want to say this over generals over generalization but we don't always have all the data when we're making assessments on on the floor right the, the crew thinks sometimes that they yes. have all the data and i'm like you guys don't have all the whole the whole story there's a whole other enchilada that's being discussed here that you're not privy to and we'd love to share that with the crew right. a lot of times but in a 14-hour day sometimes my 12 12 of those hours are meetings and trying to get a plan together. So I don't have the two hours. I don't have that extra two hours necessarily to be able to go run to the set uh, and explain it to everybody. I got to go to the bathroom and eat my lunch, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good other side of the coin, right? And that's why I asked, because I know it can be a sticky conversation and I knew you'd be pragmatic because you've also worked outside of it, right? So you've experienced the other, you've experienced asking the questions as well as being the holder of the answers. So um, that's really good perspective, I think, for people to hear, you know, about production management. Yeah, I think that a lot of times too, people don't want to, they really like there are like, maybe I'm sugarcoating it a bit. There are a lot of managers that are shitty communicators and I don't have to have a 10 minutes conversation or speech with someone uh, to explain to them, hey guys, we're, we're not doing this and I don't want to spend the money on getting that particular piece of equipment and it's creating a lot more work for you. I realize that. But the reason why I'm doing it is this. They want to spend, the guys that we work for who sign our checks, want to spend the money on this particular set. And the only way we can make that particular set work is if we all cough up and sacrifice a little bit, you know, in this particular set. Like it's, you're moving things around from one shell to the other, one bucket to the other, however it is. At the end of the day, even though Disney has a bajillion dollars and they should absolutely spend it properly, they 
only give us so much to spend at a time. And within that 16 week or 18 week, or sometimes, you know, whatever it is, 22 episode run, whatever it is, whatever that bucket is, we are thinking through how to distribute that money appropriately. And I'll tell you over 22 weeks, <laughs> the money, the money gets real thin, real quick <laughs> or 18 weeks. <laughs> I'll bet. Like, yeah, it, it just goes really quickly. I can tell you the places where it goes to. I could share all that sort of data, but I would like to do that face to face and tell people, like I'll tell the lighting guys in your, within your own department, if we, if we go with this number of lights that you guys are carrying around that you only use once in a while, let's find a way to bundle that lighting on a daily rate as opposed to a weekly rate. And we'll, we'll cut a deal with the supplier or, you know, nowadays what happens a lot in BC is that we don't have enough equipment. We don't have enough uh, stuff that we can go to at that, in that daily context. So we are carrying a lot of stuff because we don't want to lose it to another show. Right. And yeah, that, exactly. That, just, you uh, just in case, right? Just in case. Yeah, the just in case um, premium has gone way up in Vancouver. It used to be that you just didn't have it. So you kind of went without. But now we yes. have all the tools and we just don't want to lose them to another show. So we hang on to them and latch yeah. on to them. And that eats up all the dough. Like that's where I, I say to my guys all the time, anyone that's worked with me, will, I say to them, like, well, can we go without this? And is there some other way that we can wrangle this deal? Do we cut a deal with the other show that they carry it for half time? I carry it for half time. Is that something we can do? You know, like there's, you got to, you got a nickel and dime it a little bit, but it's the point is, is that we're all trying to make, you know, the, what we have, whatever show we're doing, we want to make it successful. It's hard to do. It's hard to yeah. do. Yeah. How do you how do you find it compared to locations? If you compare the two for for your own personal stress and, and life balance. Well, I think that my life balance is uh, is probably a lot. It's hard to gauge because my kids are now teenagers and they're much more self sufficient. Uh, when I was right. young, when I was a younger parent, uh, I think that uh, being location manager was fantastic for me. But it wasn't, it, and it was also it's satisfied the creative, you know, the creative side of of, of my life. Whereas now I feel yeah. like I'm just sort of, I sign stuff. I navigate. The, the only creativity is how can I craft this, you know, schedule so that everybody can, you know, work the right amount of hours or whatever it is. Like you're, 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 it's more mm-hmm. logistical craftsmanship rather than, you know, pure creative. Oh, this thing looks good. Let's photograph this or let's film this, which is, you know, when you're, when you're doing locations work at the sort of in your favorite space, on a great show with great people, you're purely creative. You don't even, you're not even thinking about the logistics. You're just going to a forest or a mountain. You're just going, man, how can I get this? This place looks awesome. It's cool. It tells a story. It also has the, you know, the appropriate logistics. And then someone will, someone's way smarter than you will come along and say, yeah, but how do we get the dolly in here? How do we get a crane in here? And then you're like, ah, <laughs> damn, <laughs> I got to think where, about that where? too, you know, but but uh, I do. do you, think- on that note, do you have some? Do you have some favorite locations that that like hold a dear place to your heart in Vancouver and proper well, from your years of LMing? I've always loved working. I mean, we all love working for us because if you can find a good, you know, stretch of there's no underbrush and there's it's just a lot of thick, beautiful evergreen trees and it's mossy. I mean, mm-hmm. me, that's, it's, it's my favorite place to go for a walk. It's the places I actually, most of my, uh, you know, anywhere that I've ever gone to hike, I've scouted at some point. So uh, those are my favorite natural environments, the mountains, the forests. That's why people come, you know, that's why, that's why shows yes. originally came to Vancouver was for that, for that locale. 
But at the same time, I mean, we don't have a lot of really cool uh, old buildings. That's a that's a real that's a downside. I love going to the campuses. Like I love going to SFU. I love going to UBC. Um, those are places that I'm always. There's always a little nugget or treasure of 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 places where you can shoot. Like I could shoot a whole show and at UBC. If it was an easy place to film, I would shoot at UBC all the time because it's just got lots of different looks. Every corner is a different look, and and you can stage things differently. You turn one corner, it looks like a modern day you know city, and then you turn the next corner, and it's like this old English you know university campus. You're at Oxford, so those are kinds of those are the kinds of things that you like. You, almost like merging a lot of things into one is always location manager. In my mind, is always location manager's favorite thing. Like you can go get a beautiful vista just for its own sake. You know, like if I have to go to the interior and shoot like a beautiful rolling hills, it's, there's great spaces in Kamloops and and in the and the Okanagan to do that. But if you're trying to consolidate yeah. locations sort of more pra- pragmatically, uh, being around a place like the UBC campus is a great thing. Or you know, Gastown used to be like that. I think it's starting to gentrify so much that it's hard to peel out the value or the good stuff there anymore. But mm-hmm. I, remember, I remember in the 90s when I got here, it was awesome. It was an awesome yeah. place. Yeah. You can shoot Europe. Well, the cobblestone and everything. Yeah, you can shoot. Yeah, exactly. You shoot. Well, you must have some that are really challenging too, right? Some real challenging locations. Um, and I know you're not still in locations, but I, these are still really interesting pieces to me of locations. Yeah, I think that, like, the funny thing is, is the biggest challenge that I noticed in the last few years is just working with other shows. It's more of a, almost like a scheduling thing. There's so much work here. And we seem to always get handed the same places to go to in terms of options to, to shoot in. Um, like, I'll give you an example. Right. It's really hard to not shoot a car car type stunt gag on the 1000 block of West Hastings like that. I can't believe that there's not a website or some sort of meme around all the shows that have shot that (laughs) stretch of street, because I'm pretty sure that guys on flash and before that arrow and legends, I mean, they're down there every month shooting something and I don't know how they make it look different. That's the sweet spot. It is. So you're most of the time now you're just orchestrating how when you can go because you know seven shows are in the queue to shoot that one block and you've got to either pay or or play you know and and it's a real yeah. it's a logistical challenge more than it is uh anything else it's really hard to film in vancouver i'd say right now the people at the city make it fairly straightforward but it's very cumbersome bureaucratic process and it's still after 25 years like i remember on i worked on da vinci's inquest 20 years ago, which is a show you probably don't remember, but it was a show. Yes, I loved that show. Come on. And that was the dad from Danger Bay, man. That's right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Danger Bay. Um, another Gen X Canadian rite of passage, right? That was another rite of passage absolutely. for us Gen Xers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Danger Bay with Jonah. Everybody had a crush on Jonah, the boy. Yeah. Jonah Ocean, Ocean was the actress yeah. who I still, I still, she's a mom now and around town, but uh yeah, I still see. That's amazing. I love know, it. There's still crew. There's very few crew left. Some of the senior, senior crew that worked on uh, Danger Bay. Very few people left that worked on that show. Still still in the business. Yeah. But there are a couple. Anyways, on Da Vinci's, we used to shoot this, the city as it was, right? We never really had to do anything because it was took place in Vancouver. And, and Chris Haddock liked, you know, he knew the town. So he knew that you could go anywhere and shoot it. And we still would have troubles on that show. 
and nothing in my mind, the paperwork and the bureaucracy that we have to, that we've had to go through since Da Vinci's inquest, where the mayor at the time was Larry Campbell. I think the year that I came into ALM, Larry Campbell was the mayor who's he's now a Senator, or I think he's still a Senator, but he's actually the reason for the show. He was like the corner that Haddock based the whole show on and he became the mayor. And then we were filming Da Vinci's, da Vinci's inquest and Right. <laughs> Even though he was the mayor. Full circle. Still, yeah. And we would still have a hard time filming because there was so much filming work and there was so it was so bureaucratic and so tough. You couldn't just roll in somewhere and make it happen. I mean, it's it's a tough place to work. Yeah, right. It's a tough job. I think I, like I said, locations work is it's pretty you're unsung, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, in so many departments. But yeah, I mean, when you speak from each department, then you get the whole side, right? And then hopefully everybody listens to all the other episodes and then they understand the realities, right? Because yeah. you, don't, you don't dig into everybody's department. You don't have time. You don't care. You're in your world, right? No, um, and every, everyone's, everyone's department, everything that we do in this, in this whole entirety, everyone is, is a craftsperson, right? Everyone is, is committed mm-hmm. to their craft and it takes years to master your craft. And uh, I mean, to light to light elegantly, to light beautifully is something that people spend. I mean, I've worked with gaffers who are, you know, until they're in their seventies and eighties and they're still trying to figure it out. Like it's something you can just yeah. never, you can never kind of get figured out. So when it's things like that, or I've, I've seen two key grips. I was on a show a few years ago and the grips were fantastic. Well, the main unit grip was a guy from, uh, was, was an American. And the, so the match, key grip was local and the second unit grip key grip was local both all, all i won't say their names but they were all like the top of the heap right the best guys in the business yeah and the three of them were sitting there figuring out how to rig cameras to a car to do a car gag and the three of them had three completely different takes on it and i was looking at it remember i remember being <laughs> watching this conversation go go on and I was laughing to my to them and and to myself, going, "This literally is 120 years, some odd years of grip experience here, and none of you has the answer to this problem." So you know that right. whatever, however, however simple, simply people perceive our business and our work, they have no concept of how complex, how clever how inventive how how much your previous experience informs what's going on in any craft what you've learned informs your current situation and to this day i don't think people really understand how it doesn't matter how much you know the problems that you'll see are always new every problem is new yeah it has a new set of parameters or circumstances new spin yeah, absolutely. And so you, 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 you have some really great people uh, in this business, especially in this town who've now been working for 30, 40 years and they know some things and they'll still look at you and go, yeah, but I don't really know the answer to that. <laughs> you know, they, which is amazing, yeah, right? It's yeah. like good to know, even at the top, you've got people going, I'm going to have to just retrofit this one today. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Uh, that's why, and that's why you'll see a lot of people too say, uh, you know, we just got to do it this way. This is the only way to do it because they don't want to stretch themselves anymore. They're too tired. They can't figure it out. Yeah, exactly. You're worn out. To, and nor should they have to, you know? Yeah, 100%. I mean, if you can do that for sure, right? I mean, I see my husband come home exhausted. I get it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, w- with your career now, I mean, we're, we're, you know, you've got so much behind you and I don't mean that in a bad way, but like, 
as a veteran in film, you know, if you look back, like, how do you feel about how film, where it's come to today and sort of, I don't want to say, do you have any regrets, but do you, do you look back with nostalgia about the way things have changed? Or are you happy with your own, you know, observation of film and where it's at today? Yeah, no, that's a great question because I think that, uh, you know, it does at some point in your aging process, you start to get nostalgic. And I'm incredibly nostalgic for probably two things only is uh, like the music of the 80s <laughs> and, and you know, good good home cooking, like good Indian food uh, from back, back home. Those are the only two things that I'm really super nostalgic about, to be honest. Like film is moving in the right directions. The, the, the things that people are doing, like getting the hours down and getting people to get paid attention to a little differently. I think that the unions have gotten much more sophisticated at being able to negotiate that with the American producers, especially. And so you'll see that though we're having troubles up in the current moment right now, I think that they're fighting in the right ways. They're doing the right things to move people's quality of life, you know, forward. Yeah. Um, I feel that people now can also see the craftsmanship that can happen on television and it's not as slapped together. Like I don't, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say that we have to take any responsibility for this in Vancouver, but all of television has started to move into this really qualitative space, right? Like, Peak TV, they're calling it, or whatever, but golden age of television. I mean, that means that people yeah. are, are really telling stories in a format that wor works for Brit British Columbians, for Vancouverites, for those of us that work and live here. It works, but it's still high, high quality. It's still highbrow, or can be. You know, it's it's just a little bit mm -hmm. more visually ambitious, or story-wise, it's ambitious, or performance-wise, it's ambitious. And so the work has gotten better. The you know, we'd love to get better work here. We'd love to do that more HBO stuff. We'd love to do more uh, highbrow, high concept, the Game of Thrones kinds of shows. You know, how many times have, have you thought, hey, we could shoot that, uh, the, we could shoot The Hobbit here. We could shoot this show here. We could shoot that show when you're watching it. Yeah. So I'd love to invite that a little bit more. I'd love to be able to poke our leadership a little bit to say, though we're really successful and our industry's grown double, tripled in the last 10 or 15 years, we still can do better work. So, and that's what it is personally too. Like I just, I know how many times I've fucked up and failed and made mistakes and judged wrong and done the wrong thing and, and been either complacent or felt entitled. And so those are things that I hold to my own standard. Like I'm not, I'm going to try and not do that again. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, I like to sleep at night knowing that I'm doing the best that I can. And so that's the only yeah. thing that I want to ambition for. Like if I, if, if the opportunity comes for me to do other things, then I'll do other things. But right now it's PMing. If I went back to location managing, I'd want to be a better location manager. If it's production manager, I want to be a better production manager. I want to find ways where I can communicate with the crew better, manage the project better, manage the locations better. Man you know what I mean? Like you just, I just, I'm on a, yeah. at this point in my career, I know my kids are old enough that they're going to do their own thing, but you want to teach them that uh, you being better for yourself is, is actually really super satisfying. You know, I don't need the status. I don't care about the titles. I don't care about, you know, uh, there's no, there's no hierarchy in the city for a lot of years. I'm sure you've heard, you know, there was a lot of senior people that would hold the cards to their chest and they kind of behave like, kind of like gangsters, you know, like mafia bosses. Yeah. 100%. And, yeah. Right? And yeah. I just, it was a bit wild west. It was, it was really rogue, right? It was really rogue. It was very male. Yeah. It was very white. Yeah. Right. And of course those things are changing for the better, of course. Right. It's, 
at the end of the day, it's uh, the culture of the work that people have and the want that they want to do. That culture has to be either viewed as something to exploit and something to take advantage of, or an opportunity to make that like a missed opportunity. Like if you don't do it better, what did you miss out on? What's the opportunity or thing that you missed out on, you know? And so in that mentality, I think a lot of people said, I'm going to hoard all the work. I'm going to hoard all the information. I'm going to hoard all the contacts. I'm going to hoard all the relationships. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that, that I'm going to succeed. And my feeling and belief is, is that I, if I stay open to whatever's going to happen, I feel like I'm going to be that much more successful because there's missed opportunities out there. There is some crew member that's a tre absolute treasure trove or person that's just like filled with great ideas or who jibes with me that I'm not going to meet because I'm behaving in this sort of really protective way, you know? And if you don't get the job and if you don't get an opportunity or if you fail at something, that's also a personal opportunity, right? To, to reflect on why it is that you got passed up for that or why it is that they're not seeing the value. You know, if, if you're like, I, this is on, maybe I'm speaking for myself here. I don't know. Uh, I felt, I know I felt that, hey, I'm a pretty smart guy. I did really well in school. I'm a university graduate. I'm all this sort of stuff. Why did I get passed over for this job when someone else got you know, when someone else got the job and they don't have the education that I have or the resume that I have or the experience I have or whatever it is. And you kind of got to look back at it and go, you know, that's just, that's either the learning opportunity, that's the person that was hiring, that's the circumstance. Like you can't control all that sort of stuff. And the minute we sort of let, mm -hmm. let go of some of that, I think that we start to find how we can get better and, and make progress on ourselves, you know? And that for me was like, finding that routine after the, the, you know, after my marriage broke down and my family was just splintered into two, I really had to find, okay, what am I about now? What am I really about? What am I really, what do I really want to teach my kids? What do I really want to uh, share with my friends and my colleagues and my, you know, my, my coworkers, whatever it is, like, what can I do? And that, and that goes into what, what, what you were probably going to talk about was some of the committee work and some of the other stuff that, that I do. And I try to, do because I just don't want to be that bitter person that says, well, I'm going to hold all this information. I'd rather try to open it up to people, you know, open up uh, all of it, you know? Well, two things I hear. One is I would say when you're in the thick of it in film, first of all, you don't have the perspective because you're just surviving, right? You're, you're just trying to get by. And so as you've, you know, you've moved up in your career and gotten older and wiser and more reflective as we all do, um, you know, you can, you're a bit more on the horizon now. You're higher up and now maybe you're seeing some of that legacy stuff too, right? Like wanting to start committees and wanting to plan for things after you, after your career. Because we don't talk about a lot of people retiring in film. Like I don't know many. They're either still working or they're not here anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, when you talk to a bunch of retired cops or firefighters, like where are the retired film people? Well, I think that's the problem with, uh, with how, the, you know, when they came here, <laughs> historically, I'm sure that people can articulate this a lot better than me that, that have been around and have gone through this. But historically, we didn't have a lot of retirement uh, infrastructure built into our union agreements, right? That only developed over time. And I'll tell you, I've been on the negotiating committee for the DGC five times, four times, and then the fifth time as, a, as I've been on the board. So I was always in, in, involved in the conversation. Um, 
we there's numerous times where we're asking for more contributions from the producers to our retirement plan. That's syrup that we called uh, that, that you might know about, which is the retirement plan for all the, you know, all the unions. I mean, we're, mm-hmm. we're we've, that thing only really came into effect 20 years ago. And so people right. haven't had the chance to build up their their retirement savings. And that's a, that's also the reflection, you know, the cost of living goes up. Uh, when there's scarce amount of work, you're kind of, you're hoarding your money a little bit, but you're not really packing it away. It's always rainy day, right? Like you're waiting for the shows to end so that that two months off where you can just decompress and have a break and, and catch yourself, you need that money to survive that time. And so people yes. haven't been able to put put away the money that they'd like, even though if they were clever, they were buying houses and and kind of getting rich like a lot of people in Vancouver and just let, riding that real estate wave. I think that I think that we just didn't have any help back in the day. And to our to mm-hmm. our senior members' credit, that they survived. If they've survived, they managed to figure it out. But they can't stop working now because. They don't have enough money in the bank. They don't have enough, a healthy enough retirement fund. Uh, they don't, they're worried. They're adrenaline junkies to begin with. They're, they almost thrive on the stress of the job, of the stress of the business. Yeah, I was going to say, I think they miss it and they can't let go, right? And, and what I meant too about retired is I didn't mean just the fund. I meant like they either pass away or they're still working. It's one of those oh. industries where you don't have a bunch of them all like meeting every year, like, oh, you know, in the glory days, like they're still on set. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they're still working, they're right? Still going, yeah. Or they've or they've like passed on. Yeah. Like it's it's just one of those industries where there's not a lot of legacy yet that people have looked back. I'm talking here, not in LA. Yeah. Um, you know, we we just haven't we don't really have that yet. And I think my point is like your generation, our generation, you and me, um, are getting to that point in these careers where you know, that's going to be us, right? And I'm, I'm curious to see what that looks like with film, you know, now that it's the next generation of Gen X sort of coming up and being close to those, you know, not yet, God forbid, but getting up to the end of those careers, right? And what that looks like in film for us. Yeah. Well, I think that it's interesting because I think that as the town has grown, also our infrastructure and and our, you know, like the community around us has also grown quite a lot and become a lot more stable. So I've noticed in the last few years that a lot of people uh, have left working on set to go work, you know, for one of the unions, for example, or, you know, right. suppliers or the the property owners, the studio stage guys, things like that, uh, or even government, you know, now they're, they're gravitating yeah, to the right. gigs because. Yeah, that's a good point. Or administration. Yeah. Like the guys, you know, like that are now running IATSE or running the studios or, yeah. you know, all that. And those people. Those people are all more in our age group than they are in the senior, you know, they're, they're not, they're not a whole lot older than us is what I, I guess I'm saying. So maybe that's something that yeah. our generation X types are, are seeing the, they have, they're still all healthy, you know, they're still all relatively together and, yeah. and they just don't want to do the set life anymore. I mean, I know in lighting, I, I always watch the guys start, they start as uh, they start working on the floors as lamp ops, then they'll become best boys then they'll switch over to rigging and then they'll become best boys in rigging or they'll become riggers, you know, rigging gaffers. And then they become set yeah. wiremen. And yeah. that's kind of like the pro- process, you know, of, uh, of the lighting department. And I, the life and, cycle of a lighting department. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I've always like, I've always felt like, what's the, when do I become a set? I want to become a set wireman. Cause I always felt like that's the funnest job. <laughs> like you get to just tool, yeah. tool around, 
you kind of call your own shots, you know, you're, it's a great, it's a great gig. I, I envy the set. I'm always like, I've said to set wireman, I'm like, that's kind of the best job. Plus you can, you know, you can get your own gear and you can rent it out and cut a deal with the guys and get your gear rented out. It's really right. interesting. Well, I'll shove my husband into that when he gets too cr- crickety to uh, be going up on lifts and doing rigging light and doing all the uh, rigging that he does now. I'll send him out to be a set wireman. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun, I think it's, I look at them and it's like the funnest job because really it's also too, it's a big mystery, right? Like they, nobody kind of really knows what they do because it's like usually one or two guys and that's it. You know, although LEDs. Yeah, they'll leave really, you alone. Yeah. You just get left alone. So nobody really knows what this guy's doing. I've walked into the, you know, the stages before for years actually. And I usually like to go at very off hours where there's nobody around just to check out how the progress is going. And I'll walk into a set and there's always one or two guys like putting in led lights and some, you know, some desk or something like that. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? They're like, well, we don't want to be here with the rest of the crew that's prepping. So we came in after hours to put in these leds for, for the set. For the, and I'm like, is that for the scene tomorrow? So we're not going to test this. And they're like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to, it'll be fine. It'll, t- it'll work. It'll, t- it'll work. And I'm like, okay. And then of course the next day comes and it works beautifully. And I'm like, man, those set wiremen. I like that job. That's a fun job. Yeah. <laughs> so we're running out of time here. I do want to quickly ask you about this climate change committee. I want to talk briefly because obviously climate change is a huge, you know, oh, we could go all day about this, but it's obviously, yeah. you know, it's in the yeah. rear view. It's coming fast. It's and coming fast. It's, it's a reality it's for, it's, it's a reality for film, right? It's a reality for locations, especially and, and our, our province and shooting. So talk to me a little bit just about that and what you're working on with that. Well, I think at the end of COVID, I realized that the industry could really shift gears quickly and make some, you know, sort of dramatic changes in the way we did things very quickly, which we did with COVID. Like we were forced to really. Uh, but I think that watching yeah. it happen convinced me. I've always been a little bit concerned about waste and, and you know, power and diesel. And, you know, as a locations guy, you're hearing complaints 60% of the time when it's around a generator, it's the, the it's about the pollution, right? It's about the exhaust fumes. And it does yeah. bother you. I was like, I, I did my undergrad degree in biology. I like the ecology as a, as a realm of study. I've always been interested in all that stuff. I've been a Greenpeace member. I hate to confess this, but I've been a Greenpeace member since the 80s. Uh, so all that stuff was concerning, but you never take it seriously and you kind of never really integrate it into your work life. And then a few years ago, I started getting a little bit more concerned about it and active and I didn't really know what I could do. I would try to force people to investigate tying into buildings, accessing the grid, uh, using cleaner power. I met uh, Mark Rabin, who had started, who, had, who was just working to start Portable Electric way back when in two, 2015. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all this sort of stuff has just converged after COVID. And then Clara George, who is a line producer that did The Magicians and is a very big advocate for green practices on her shows, uh, she put out there that uh, we wanted to do something with the Guild. And she knew that I'd had a lot of experience with working as a part of the Directors Guild. So she started this national committee uh, around sustainability and climate action at the at the Guild. We, they partnered a little bit with Real Green, which is the agency that Julie Bernard uh, started at. I don't know if she started it, but she's kind of the key ambassador for it at Creative BC. And just the, the two ladies, they're very worried about all the stuff that we don't do, right? And I said, okay, let's see yeah. how we can start to talk about this and get the word out there. And so for the last year and a bit, we're just trying to 
talk to people, uh, teach people. We put up a website, dgcgreen.ca, which is all about how to help our DGC members find resources. We've been in conversation with the Producers Guild of America, and Clara does a lot of this work now. She has quit line producing and is fully with uh, Netflix as their sustainability lead in Canada. Uh, and I just said, I'm going to just do whatever I can. I'm trying to integrate training through Creative BC and some of the other agencies into the Directors Guild uh, uh, training because we have a pretty sophisticated uh, training routine to upgrade in the DGC. Like you have to take courses to go from being a PA to a, a trainee, an ALM, a location manager, production manager, all that stuff. Not like the old days. Yeah. You, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it, it's it's a little bit to just try and get people to see the job as something that requires a lot of text, right? Like you need a lot yes. of material. You need to master a lot of material to be able to do it. Same with the ADs have a training program as well. So I just want to include some sustainability training across the board. We're going to start trying to talk to IA too. They've in the last four or five months, all the, all the unions have developed their committees. I think they're just all getting their legs about what this all is. Yeah. But the biggest thing I think that we can do immediately is really start to get the word out about fuel consumption, about, emergency preparedness because last year we had what well, we had three big events last year in 2021 right we had the pollution and the smoke from the fires we had the heat dome and we had the flood and those are all climate change related uh catastrophes for lack of a better word crises and mm-hmm. they're all things that will impact how we how we work and their health and safety issues. So there are something there's something there for the the unions to fight for because that's ultimately what they have to fight for a little bit. But more yeah. import, more importantly, we w- want to make sure that what we're asking for on the health and safety front is backed up by our behaviors on set. Right? We want to be able to say we want you to create a, w- a safe working place uh, for us in the world and wherever we go and and have an understanding of what that means. But we'd also like to ask people to practice you know, practice the right things that are not contributing to the problem. And that's the easiest ways to do that are be conscious of fuel, be conscious of how you consume, uh, you know, food and where you put your waste and how you manage that, the waste management side of it. How do you repurpose the things that you're, you're using? You know, like we are very disposable as anyone can say that what's worked on a set, they use it once they cut it up, throw it in the garbage. And so how do we start yeah. creating some circularity in, in the way we, we build yeah. our sets, the tools that we use in our, in our world, all of that. And it is a big, overwhelming task, but I think that any little change or any little contribution that we can make, that's something that I want to encourage people to do. Like, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be like me, like go on a panel and talk about it. You know, sometimes you're talking out of your ass a little bit because you don't really like, there's just so much to this conversation. There's so much that we can do. So pick your thing, you know, like for me in the last few months, I've just said, I'm just going to focus on fuel consumption. I'm going to track my fuel. I'm going to track the fuel on the show that I'm going to do. I'm going to watch how we use diesel. My last show, I was like, okay, I'm just getting all electric cars and we're going to make sure that we always have an ability to charge electrically wherever there's generators. So our circus had chargers, right. our stage had chargers. Uh, all of our producers drove Teslas and electric vehicles. 
you know, and they had fun with it. And so this sort of thing just started to mean that more people, like I, all of a sudden I'd show up to work after four months and I'd see a car parked in one of the producer spots because they had a charger. And I was like, whose car? I go into the office and I'm like, who's parked in the producer spot? And then say, oh, one of the crew wanted to charge his car because he didn't, you know, he ran out of his charge. So he needed a charger. I'm like, okay, no problem. We'll let the producer know. And, and everyone's sharing, you know? So it's just trying to yeah. get off the drug that is, is, uh, you know, fuel, dirty fuel. Well, and I applaud you because that, that is, everything takes the first steps, right? And, and we all know in big institutions, it's, it's, you're right. It's overwhelming, but you have to start somewhere. It's our reality for every industry now. So, you know, yeah. kudos for doing that because you can easily get targeted for greenwashing and all the like disgruntled people of like, it's hopeless, but you have to start somewhere, even having the conversations, right? Yeah, I think that I'm going to get accused of all sorts of things all the time, and I have been. I think that's just a part of the the responsibility that, or the part of the challenge. You know, like I have an answer mm-hmm. for the kind of person that I am and what I want to do. And I don't think that anyone that wants to hurl things at me, I've had shit hurled at me before. I'm a brown guy. Like <laughs> I've had in our business, <laughs> in, in our business, I can tell you there's people that I've worked with who are still working in the business who've called me racist things over time. There's the, right. you know, people talk about microaggressions. I've experienced all the microaggressions and I'm still here and I'm still going to put this, you know, yeah. I'll still try to make that person smile and I'll still try to make the, the, the work go the way it should go for me. Because that's a part of the responsibility, I think, at some point for us, like you keep calling us the senior, you know, veterans, us veterans have to lead right? that, that way a little bit too, you know, like it, the, the world's not just, I, I know I live in an unjust space and I, I know I live in a not fair world. I've never been given anything because I was a colored guy. In fact, I know I've had opportunities taken away because I was a colored guy, but I'm not going to harp yeah. on the bitterness I might have about that. That's for you know, the middle of the night when I want to cry myself to sleep for some reason or something. At the end of the day, my life's been really good. My kids are healthy. I have a great career and a great bunch of people that I work with that I really adore. And uh, I think the world of, and I want to celebrate them and I want them to celebrate themselves. And I think you can only do that when you're, you know, more on a positive tip than the not, you know, harping on the negative crap. You know what you sound like? You sound like you're getting old and wise, Hans. <laughs> <laughs> that could be the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. These are the guys that you used to listen to when you were on set going, oh, Jesus, what is this guy talking about? But that's you now. That's us. So I, I applaud you today. I mean, thank you so much. I know we met inadvertently online through the podcast, but... I wanted to have you on because you're such a wealth of information, you know, about the departments and also about, well, you. you know, looking back and yeah. reflection as well. I don't think a lot of people in the trenches of film right now think about that yet, nor do they have time to, and it's not their time to yet. Yeah. But it is it is something to think about, right, is the evolution of film and where your journey goes and, you know, what's really important and just remembering what's really important. Because yeah. when I started this podcast, it was like a lot about life on set. And, you know, you and I talked about that previously, like everybody wanted, you know, what is it like working with celebrities and being on set? And you realize all the microcosms that are working in film that are nothing to do with that. And actually that's the least exciting and the least transformative part of working in film, really. And and I've realized that now, you know, Um, as have all the people working in film for more than a hot minute, that 
that's not really what it's about. And that's not really what you're getting out of it at all. And I just think that's been really eye-opening and amazing for me to see in talking with all of you when I do these episodes, right? Um, so that's a really rewarding piece. It's, it is challenging for me to sometimes put, take myself out of it and see it with that perspective. So I really appreciate that, that you're, and that's kind of what I love about the podcast too, is that it's sort of, it's, it is, you're one step removed though. You're really familiar with our world. You're one step away from it. So you can kind of put it in a healthier context for those of us that are too immersed in it, <laughs> that we can't see straight, but uh yeah, exactly. I think, I, th- I think I think that people have to take pride in the work that they do. And when you start to take pride in your work, even if it's not your best work, you know, like I will say probably in my career, in my, well, I still think it's a brief journey. Uh, I think that I've probably thought to myself, you know, I did a good job on that show maybe twice or three times out of the 20 years. You're never satisfied. And, but I'll tell you uh, that, and that might be the thing that I've learned most from some of the real maestros and masters of our business that I've had the opportunity to work with. They're never satisfied. They're never, it's never good enough. They're always asking themselves how to become better. And that doesn't have to mean just the production designers or the producers or directors or writers or whoever it is, it can also mean the gaffers, the lighting guys, the the dolly grips, the, the, you know, anybody that's applying themselves the craft of making this, whatever their little, you know, little or big world is in this, they're always trying to be better. And Mm -hmm. that's something that flips you into being more positive and more uh, energized more than anything else. The money is going to come. The money's there, whatever it is, the quality of life. We live in the best city in the world. Like who's going to beat this, right? But the enjoyment of yourself and what you do for a living, if you can wrap your head around, if one can wrap their head around that particular concept and just try and aspire, I think that it just, it's a self-feeding uh, loop. And it just, it just makes you better in every way. Every little thing that, that happens makes you better in every way. And, you know, you may never reach that point of satisfaction. I, I, I remember doing a music video with Bono and the U2 in 2011 or 2012. I was ADing it with, uh, with, a, with a couple of friends. And uh, I'd gone there and I was giving Bono his cue at, the, at, the, at a start mark. And he's, he lights up a cigarette, and this is in the middle of Rogers Arena or GM Place, whatever it was at that point. I think it was GM Place at that point. <laughs> and he lights up a cigarette in the stage, and uh, he's smoking. And then I hear we hear the over the horn, BAD says, okay, we're ready. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Roll camera. And so Bono's got the cigarette, and he just looks at me, and I'm standing there to give him his cue, and I just hand him the – he hands me the cigarette. And I grabbed the cigarette from him and I said, can I, can I finish this? And I said, because it'd be a real honor for me to, to smoke Bono's cigarette. And he, <laughs> he kind of laughed at me, right? And he goes, he goes, I know I'm going to fuck up this take now because you've thrown me off with a laugh because I had to be in a certain headspace. And I said, I, th- I find it interesting that I'm fucking up De- Bono's take. <laughs> like, this is a guy that's mastered yeah, exactly. music, right? And, and and so even a guy like that at the top of his game, he knew every shot. He knew how to work that video. Like there was no, we were not directing Bono in, in this, in this video and he knew what to do. Even a guy like that is still knows that he's going to make mistakes. He knows that he hasn't mastered it. It's not perfect. It still could be better. It's like, it's, it's endless. And it's a great quest to be on, you know? Now that's a good way to end it for all those little kitties out there. And also remember kids, don't use the snow that was used in Caresdale. No. Stay away from the toxic snow. If we can leave you with any tidbit that really sums it all up, planning, locations, 
climate. Don't use the toxic snow, kids. Don't use the toxic snow. Just try and be better. Just try and be better. And that that snow thing made me try question, and be better. Like any any person in film, I'm I'm probably stretching this out too long, but any person in film will say their previous experiences are always why they ask the questions that they ask. So now, if I work with special effects guys uh, and we're going to do snow, I always ask, <laughs> like, what's the snow material again? Can I just get the MSDS on the snow material? Because you don't want to make that mistake. Though. No, it never leaves you, right? You carry those like little little flower petals in your pressed book of experiences. Snow's in there somewhere. Exactly. Thank you so much for your time. I'm Thank so you. appreciative of you just sharing so much of your experiences and time, really. And we covered so much. And I know people will find it useful on multiple levels. I sure did. But yeah, I really just wish you the best on your next endeavor, whatever it is, with Hulu. I look forward to seeing whatever that is. And um, hopefully COVID can kind of go behind us a bit more. It seems like we've come back pretty well in productions we've kind of ironed that out and yeah i mean there's a lot of films still to do this year right and spring's here it's only getting started it's going to be busy for the number number of years i think we're going to get really really busy here again which is great yeah we'll see everybody on the other side (laughs) yeah exactly thank you so much for your time thanks colby you do a great thing here you do a really great thing you're the best thank you If you want to learn more about my podcast, you can go to vantropolispodcast.com or you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I always appreciate reviews as well, which you can do on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Subscribe, like, or share it with someone you think might be interested in the Vancouver film industry. Or if you work in film, maybe send it to your partner so they know why you're never home.